right. So let's start with prayer. Let's pray together. Almighty, most powerful God, creator of the heaven and the earth, we praise you today. We thank you for what you are doing right now in this place and what you plan to do. God, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the way that we get to be a part of the work that you are doing, and we get to love you. God, I pray that over the next little while that you would be brought so much glory and honor through the way that we learn about you through your word. God, and would you spur us on to action so that we might be more like you. Lord, we love you. We give you this time in Jesus' most perfect name. Amen. All right. So, as I was preparing for this message, <clears throat> I asked God, what is it that he wanted to teach me, and what is it that he wanted to teach all of us? And something that stuck out, really even before I had spent much time with the passage, was that God desires for me to love the church. And I, I, I started out loving the church. I love church. Growing up in church, absolutely love church. But God has a desire for me to love the church more. And I believe that he has a calling and a desire for us all to love the church more and to love him more. And so as we start, that is sort of the base of where I, I started as I was preparing for this message today. And so that has been my prayer over the last couple weeks, that I would love you guys more, love God more, and we would be united with our love for God and our love for one another. So this week we get to start out our series in the book of Nehemiah, which I've been super, super excited about. And so over the past four weeks, we have been going through the book of Romans, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. We've had some tough conversations, and I have been so, so thrilled with what we've got to talk about over the last four weeks with what Paul has to say. And I'm really excited for what Nehemiah has for us, in store for us the next three weeks. So as we set up, this is our first, first week in the book of Nehemiah, and I want to lay some context. So if you've been following along with our Bible reading in a year plan, this will be a little bit of a refresher for you guys. And if you haven't, that's totally okay, because this should hopefully paint a picture of where we've been and where we are getting to now when we get to the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. We'll be focusing and looking at, actually, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, and that'll be 11 uh, verses 11 through 20. But I want to lay a little bit of a foundation so we can picture where we were and where we're going as we step into this story in the book of Nehemiah. First of all, the people of God, the Israelites, made a covenant with God. They said, we will be your people and you will be our God. We will follow you wholeheartedly and you God says he would bless them. He says, if, whoa, sorry. <laughs> he says, he says, if you follow me and are committed solely to me, I will bless you. But if you turn from me, you will not be blessed. 
I will allow your enemies to come and take you over, and I will allow you to be carried off into exile. And so, this is what God established from the inception of the nation of Israel. That they would be devoted to him, and God would be devoted to them. First of all, they had King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he started off pretty well. He sought after God, and things went well for him. But eventually, jealousy and pride and arrogance got in the way, and he turned from God. And because of this, God ripped the kingdom away from him and gave it to King David. Now, King David, he was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was absolutely amazing. He was known as a man after God's own heart. And though we know that David was imperfect and had plenty of mistakes, he is known as the greatest king that Israel ever had. After him came Solomon, one of David's sons. He was known as the wisest man to ever live, and he brought on the heels of David the greatest wealth and riches that Israel had ever seen and will ever see, um, monetarily anyways. He was so wise, and he was so wealthy. And he did really well for most of his life. But we, we've talked about this, I think it was a couple months ago, not a couple weeks, I said that last service, and I was like, now we've been in Romans. But we talked, about, we talked about Solomon a couple months ago, and how he married hundreds of foreign wives, And these foreign wives, who God commanded him not to marry, led him astray and told him to chase after these other gods, these gods that weren't really gods, and to worship them. And in the end, Solomon ends his life on sort of a sorry, sad note, where he's leading the people astray from God. From there, Israel falls into disarray. They have a civil war. The top 10 northern tribes, they break away from the two southern tribes. So there there is now Israel on top and Judah on the bottom. They're fighting with each other. They're fighting with their neighbors. They're not seeking after God. And king after king after king, even though there's a few bright spots, mostly the kings are leading the people away from God, which is exactly what God called them not to do. They called, he was calling the kings to lead the people to him but instead they were turning their back on him. And if we remember the covenant that they made, they said, God, you will be our God and we will be your people if we stay devoted to you. But if not, things won't go well for us. And eventually, even though God was greatly patient with them, continually sending them prophets and judges saying, turn back to God. He will, he will make things right with you. He, he wants to forgive you for what you've done wrong. They continually pushed God away and decided to chase after other gods. And because of that, their enemies conquered them, and they were exiled to all over the world. And this is sort of where we start to see our passage come in. We read that Zerubbabel was a guy, and he led some people back to Jerusalem out of exile. After that, Ezra comes, and he helps build the temple, establishing worship and sacrifice for God. After this, we pick up with Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a, is a really fun character to study and to learn about because he was this man of God. He cared for God so deeply. He cared for God's people. He ge- cared for God's city. 
he actually had never been to Jerusalem before. He'd grown up in exile, and he was the chief cupbearer for the king, which was pretty much as high as you could get if you were a foreign person in the kingdom. So he was checking to make sure that nobody was poisoning the king. And so the king had an extreme amount of trust in Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets a report from Jerusalem, and it says, we have reinstated the, the temple. We have rebuilt the temple. We have reinstated the sacrifices, and we are worshiping God. But there's bad news. We don't have a wall around Jerusalem. And in this day and time, a wall was necessary for safety. If you didn't have a wall, you were susceptible to all of your enemies that were surrounding you. You could not protect yourself. And more importantly for the Israelites, they could not protect the house of God, the place where they could worship. At any point, if the enemy wanted to come in, they could just come in, break down the temple again, and carry them off. And so they were susceptible. They were a city without the honor because the walls represented this honor of the city, this, this um, power that they had to protect themselves and to protect what mattered most to them. And so this broke Nehemiah's heart. He said, this should not be. We need to do something about this. And through the grace of God, he allowed the king to grant Nehemiah permission to go to Jerusalem and to go see that the walls would be rebuilt. This was so, so vitally important to the welfare of the community and to the people of God. So, we, we have established that the walls were necessary for protection and for protecting the house of God. So I want to read and pick up in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. This is going to be our core passage for this morning. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, and he gathers up all of Israel when he says this, and says, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this that you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, 
the God of heaven, will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So I want to point out this last little section just as a side note. He has full permission and encouragement from the king, Artaxerxes, to go and rebuild the wall. And opposition springs up and they say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to overthrow the king by building this wall? And he has every right in the world to say, no, the king literally told me I could go and do this. But he chooses, chooses to go one step higher. He says, the God of heaven will give us success. I don't even need to explain to you that the king has already given me permission. God will give us success regardless of anything. He had so much faith and confidence in who God was, in the plan, in the mission that he had set before him. Nehemiah was a man of passion. He had a deep passion for God. He had a passion for the city of Jerusalem. Excuse me. And he had a passion for the Israelites. He desired that the honor would be restored to first the temple in the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel, but most importantly, that it would be restored to God. This place isn't just any city. Jerusalem isn't just any city to the Israelites. Jerusalem is the center of the world for them. This is where the temple was. This is where they got to sacrifice to and worship God. This is where David established his throne. All of the important ancestors and kings were buried in this city. This was the place where they got to worship their God. This was so, so important to them. And building this wall meant everything to them. In this mission, this goal that Nehemiah had laid before him, he didn't wait around and say, oh man, somebody should really go and do that. Somebody should really go and get that wall done. He said, no, I am going to go. I am going to make it happen. I am going to gather and unite the people, and we are going to go, and we are going to get this done. So they had the right idea. They started, and they started by repenting. They said, God, we're sorry for what we've done. And God said, I love you. I forgive you. And he brought the people back. They built the temple. They reinstated the sacrifices and the worship. And now they've decided we need to build the wall to restore the honor of Jerusalem, the honor of our God, the honor of the place where we get to worship him. And so, in the end, aligning themselves with God was the single most important thing that they could do. Likewise, we, as people of God, must be aligning ourselves with God. Alignment with God and his will is the single most important thing we can do. That's the single most important decision, life-wise, that we can take, is to be in alignment with him. So, as we go on, I want to establish that God has deepened over, my, oh, deepened over the past few weeks my already established love for all of you as the church. And because I love you, I long to challenge you, to challenge us, to grow deeper, to grow deeper in our walk, to grow deeper in our love 
for God, to grow deeper in our understanding and in our obedience of what God calls us to do. Nehemiah was a man who saw something that needed to change, and he said, I'm going to be the person that God is going to use to make this change happen. He was a man of God, and when it was time to get something done, he got up and he got it done. He had purpose and he was driven. Likewise, just like Nehemiah did, we are called to be united as a people. We are called to be aligning ourselves to one person, and that is Jesus Christ. As we align ourselves with him, he sends us out with a common goal, and our common goal is that we would love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would love each other, love the church, and love the lost. And he gives us this mission, the Great Commission, to go and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and commanding them to obey what Jesus had told us to do. How much greater is our mission than building a wall? We see that this was such an important thing for the people of Israel, to build this wall. And we have a great calling as believers in Christ, as people filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We have a great call to be building the kingdom of God. How much greater is our mission? Because the wall had life or death consequences. If they didn't build the wall, somebody could have came in, wiped them all out could have knocked down the temple, everybody and everything could have been lost. For us, our decisions, what we do with our lives, this short little bit of life that God has given us, it has eternal consequence. It has eternal consequence. And we must live with the knowledge, reminding ourselves and reminding each other of this. This is really hard for me because I, I have gone days I have gone days, I have gone weeks in my life where I haven't intentionally thought about the consequence of my actions. The consequence of what I am doing or what I am not doing as it relates to eternity. When I think about the reality, the reality that there are people on this earth that don't know Jesus. They don't know the hope the love that we have, that they are dying today and they are spending eternity, all of eternity, apart from God. It just makes me sick. Like, like I think about that, I'm like, how could, I, how could I not do something? How could I not be actively pursuing to tell those people, hey, there's hope. There's hope in Jesus. And, and this is hard because there are things that, that get in the way that distract, that block our view of what, what matters most, what is most important. I think about, oh, man, sorry, keep doing that. I think about, 
I think about money. How even as a pastor, it doesn't matter how much money you make, you still think about trying to get more money. I, th- I think about, I think about my reputation. I think about what people think about me, and like how people think Jarrett is as a person. I think about my hobbies and the fun that I want to have and the adventures that I want to go on and etc. I think about all of those things. And I need to repent. I need to turn. Lots of those things aren't bad things. But when they take the place of God, it doesn't work. It's not right. God is so much greater, so much better, so much more worthwhile than all of those things and more. And the reality is, Jesus, he is coming back. He is coming back soon. We don't know exactly the day or the hour. He says that. But each and every day is one day closer to when Jesus will return. And he's not going to return in his human form like he did 2,000 years ago. He is going to return in all of his glory. He is going to come and every single human on the earth is going to bow before him. Some of us will bow by choice. That is who we want to be. We want to be people who are bowing before the God that is coming by choice because there are others who will bow to him, but it's by force. And we do not want to be in that position. And we don't want others to be in that position either. That is not a good position to be in. And that's just putting it lightly. I think about my house, my car, my bank account, my reputation, my toys, my comfortable life. And I think Jesus will be impressed by absolutely none of that. He will not be impressed by that. And, and that, is, that is hard because naturally I'm like, man, those things seem pretty important. But he says, no, no. The things that matter in eternity are what truly, truly matters. Those things are menial and minimal compared to who I am and what I have planned for you. We are called, as a church, as believers and followers in Jesus Christ, to be more than just decent people. The people who tithe our 10%, the people who don't swear too much, the people who go to church every once in a while. I am called. We, as a church, are called to be people living on mission to be building the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that is here and now. His church. His people. We are called to be living with that in mind. With that as a priority. Above all else. And expectantly awaiting when he returns. And how do we do this? The passionate love for God and the unity among the church is how we can build the kingdom. The Jesus that I know is worth my everything. He is calling us, church, to set aside the worthless and worldly things 
that we are chasing after and to start spending our lives chasing things that matter to him. Living lives full of purpose, full of meaning, with things that count for eternity, that don't just last for a fleeting moment. He is calling us to this. Long gone are the days when we as a believer can can insert some sort of excuse as to why we are not building the kingdom. He is calling us, each and every one of us, those of us who have the Spirit of God inside of us, to be building the kingdom. In this call, this call is for the very highest and the very lowest and everywhere in between. This call is for you. This call is for me. If we have one minute left of life, or if we have a hundred plus years left to live, Jesus wants us to be building his kingdom. He wants to use us. He chose to use us. And so I think about this kingdom and this, this idea of the kingdom, and I, I imagine it as a team. I imagine it as a great big team. So I've been on a lot of sports teams in my life. I, I did four sports every year from sixth grade on and did a change of different ones, probably about nine different sports. So I've been on a lot of sports teams, been on a couple winning sports teams, been on a very big majority of losing sports teams and everywhere in between. But my favorite was getting to run track for Indiana Westland. That was, that was so much fun. I, I really loved my teammates, really loved my coaches, really loved the sport that I was getting to do. And uh, we all had this goal. Conference championship was our goal. We wanted each and every person to be playing their part in their role. People had different expectations, different, um, different roles, but we all had this one goal. This goal was to score as many points as we possibly could so that we could win. We had this goal, and we worked hard. We trained together. We sweat. We cried. We bled together. And this was, this was very, very bond-forming for me. I, almost all of my closest friends were on the team. And I, I think about the team that we are on right here and right now, the people sitting in this room, the people that are gathered yesterday, today, and tomorrow, worshiping our God. And the only difference— one, one of the only differences is that instead of really hoping that we can win, we already know that we have won. We already are on a winning team. So that's really exciting and encouraging. But the tough part is, that isn't a call for us to slow down and just be like, oh yeah, we'll cheer those people on. God has a plan to bring more people onto his team. A plan that involves you and it involves me. He is calling us to be fulfilling this great commission work. And how might we do this? I believe that Jesus puts it quite simply. We're going to be reading John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. And Jesus quite simply says, this is how you as the church, we as the church, are going to reach the world that does not know me.
He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. He's talking to his disciples, and he's praying for us. How cool is that? Just want to sit and acknowledge that for a moment. How cool is that, that Jesus is praying for you and for me right now? Those who believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. He's praying this. God himself is praying this for us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is an extraordinary passage that we could spend weeks and years of our lives studying. God wants us to dwell on this passage far beyond the short little bit of time we get to spend today. And I would challenge you guys, if you don't do anything else this week, spend some time just thinking about that. Read through that a couple times. Jesus says that through the unity of the church, through our unified love of God and love of people, he would bring the lost to himself. The love that we have for each other and the love that we have for the lost and the love that we have for God will point people to realizing Jesus, he must have been God. Jesus, he is, he is worth following. He is worth giving my life for. The unity that I see in the church, those people are unified under the God of the universe. Jesus must be God. He says this. He says, our unity will bring the lost to him. And so that is our calling, that is our challenge, that we would be unified under this great and awesome news this great and awesome love for an extraordinarily amazing God. Building the kingdom of God, like building the wall, is a job for each and every person. Every believer is called and commanded to actively be working. We can do this work when we are unified under Jesus, focused on the goal of loving God and staying on mission as we fulfill the Great Commission. I want to read another passage, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Paul is reiterating and highlighting what Jesus said. And he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. He says, the evangelist pastors, teachers, prophets, 
Their goal is to be building the kingdom, but they are to be equipping the people. The people is every single believer. The people is everyone. God's kingdom is not a team with a few people running really hard, doing all the work, and then a bunch of people cheering them on on the other side. He has a united team. Everybody has a goal. Everybody has the same mission. Everybody has different tasks. But we are all called to be fulfilling the Great Commission, building the kingdom, loving God, loving each other, loving the lost. So, how do we do this? How do we build the kingdom? We've talked about building the kingdom a lot. I probably said it 20 too many times. But, what can we do to start? I believe, number one, if we look at our core story in Nehemiah, we start with a posture of repentance. Starting with a heart posture of repentance for a lack of obedience. Of our worship of lesser things and our lack of action. We do this by getting on our knees Asking God to search our hearts and say, where is it that I am falling short? Where is it that I am not following you like I said that I would? Where is it that I am placing things higher than you in my life and saying, I am sorry, God. I want to turn. I want to shift where I am going and come back to you. Please forgive me. And in this heart posture of humbleness and repentance, this is where God starts to do the work. He starts to call the people back. He says, yes, I love you. I forgive you. I've been waiting for you to say this. I've been waiting for you to do this because I want to restore you to where we were before. And that leads into our second one. We need to actively pursue the things that God has planned for us. Choosing not to relent or settle until we are in alignment with him. Like the people in the time of Nehemiah, they sought after what God desired. They sought God desired for himself to be worshipped. They desired for the, he desired for the temple to be rebuilt and for the sacrifices to be reinstated and for a wall to be built around. And the people, they unifiedly, through the power of God, got this done. They together got this done because they were unified in the alignment of who God was and why they were doing what they were doing. And thirdly, I'm going to invite the worship team back up as we, as we wrap this up so you guys can come up this way. But the third point is we need to be united as believers under the great banner of Jesus Christ and focused together on the Great Commission. This is getting our hands dirty. This is each and every person picking up their shovel and getting ready. This might look like choosing to love the lost. Loving the lost. But honestly, for me, I don't know about for you guys, but for me, I feel like loving the lost is honestly a little bit easier than loving our brother and sister in Christ who really irritates us, 
who really just doesn't, doesn't get us, doesn't have, the same, doesn't have the same focus, the same mindset as us, but yet we see, we read in God's word, we see in John when Jesus says it, we see in Paul, uh, in Ephesians when Paul says it, we are called to love them and be unified with them under the common goal and the common mission. We are called to love those people that have different preferences than us. The people that say, man, I really like it one way and that's how I'm going to do it. And if you don't like it, I don't really care. We are called to love those people and we are called to be loved by those people if we're doing that as well. We are, we are called to be unified under the love for God and the love for each other. And our goal, our mission is the Great Commission. And so I've said the Great Commission a bunch of times too, and I don't want to just assume that everybody knows that. So I'd like to read that for us really quick. <clears throat> this is Jesus' final command before he leaves the earth. He says in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As we go about this week, as we go about the rest of our service, as we go about the rest of our lives, I want to challenge you guys to dwell on this. Dwell on this idea that we are on a team. We have a common goal. We have a common objective, building the kingdom, like building a wall. We are called all to the work that God has placed before us. And I want to read, um, I want to read a prayer as we close. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Guys, there are so many people in the world who are desperate, searching, longing for something more, looking for hope, looking for truth, looking for something that is real and that they can give their lives for. And the reality is, with all confidence, we have the answer. You have the answer. I have the answer. So, as we go this week, as we finish up our worship service today, let's go and start building.